0: I hope that's at least the encouraging part, but uh, anyways, uh, in, in verse number 8, "...in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ." We've talked about, we have two, two different groups here that are going to be judged in that flaming fire when Christ returns. Uh, it are those who have never heard the gospel, but yet still have not repented and believed. Now, they still are yet held accountable, as we have seen, according to God's uh, holiness and, and righteousness. Um, but as well, uh, in His love and in His grace, He has sent us into the world to preach the gospel, and this should motivate our hearts all the more. Uh, But then as well, we talked about the second group there, those that reject the gospel, and so this uh, is also the reminder that though we will preach the gospel, though we are called to preach the gospel uh, to every tribe, tongue, and nation, not all will believe. It is not our job to ultimately, it, we, we can't even make a convert. We can simply give the gospel. We can simply toss out the seed. We can simply obey the Lord. Uh, it is up to the Lord uh, to do such a work. And, and ultimately, it is uh, the, the job of the, the, the responsible here to repent and believe the gospel as it's getting thrown out, as we're proclaiming the truth. He goes on, then he says, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction. Now we talked about this, and this is not annihilationism, but rather uh, this is an eternal destruction. It is sort of this way, always being destroyed, yet never annihilated. Always being destroyed, yet never to completion. It it will go on and on and on just as sure as heaven is forever, so is the lake of fire. Then we find, he says, who shall be uh, punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of His power, when He shall come to be glorified in His saints. And to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and ye in him, according to the grace of of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What we pick off today is is this, as we sort of bring this little section to a close before we get into verse number 11. The second coming, right? This is not the rapture, but the second coming at the end of the tribulation period. It will not only bring the retribution against unbelievers, but the reward uh, of the saints who will be glorified, uh, of him being glorified in his believers. Notice in the verse number 10, he says, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints. Now, the, the Lord, you say, well, isn't he to be glorified in the saints now? Well, yes, he is to be glorified in the church, through the church, by the church, both today, but ultimately when he returns uh, with his gathered church and we come back to this world with him and he comes to to conquer and to rule and to reign and, and we get to participate in his kingdom, to rule and to reign with him and are giving responsibilities uh, and, and to be able to enjoy the kingdom of God now, simply because we are in Christ. Now, what we find is that he will be ultimately glorified in that uh, we see this throughout the Scripture, Old and New Testament alike, the many prophecies that, that are leading up to that day, uh, as well the, the many prophecies that tell us about what that day will look like in the kingdom. And ultimately that uh, the Lord Himself will sit upon the throne, that He will rule, He will reign, and all will confess that Christ is Lord uh, to the glory of God the Father. Uh, now as we see Sorensen, he writes, "...not only is the return of Christ a time of vengeance on a wicked world, it is also it will be a time in which our Lord is further glorified by His people." That likely will include the church triumphant returning with him. It may also include those who turned to Christ during the tribulation and survived the same. In fact, in no doubt, it will include all of God's people of all ages who will be resurrected in that day. His return will also be to be admired in all of them that believe. In that day, his people, world around, who have been resurrected from all ages will admire him. That will certainly include the Thessalonian brethren who had believed Paul's testimony among them. and so here's here's one of the beautiful truths about ultimately that day uh, when we when Christ returns and we return alongside with him is who else will be there? These Thessalonian believers who had faced persecution and tribulations and trials, uh, the, the very same ones that Paul is writing to to correct and, and to encourage, and has even talked about how their testimony of suffering and, and, and facing persecutions uh, is worthy uh, of being uh, uh, an uh, exhortation and an example to other churches. And, and so uh, you and I will be able to worship, uh, to serve alongside of folks that we've never known, and yet in the Lord we will know them. Uh, And yet in the Lord, we will be able to have such a kindred spirit because we will be uh, glorified with the uh, with them to be able to reign uh, and, and rule and to work, and to serve, and to do whatever the Lord bids us to do and allows us to do in His kingdom. Uh, and there is much mystery to it. We do know this. We will be able to serve Him. We will be called to serve Him. We will be empowered to serve Him. We will be prepared to do so. And we will be given jobs, responsibilities. Do we know what all of that means and holds and entails? No, I don't know what I'm going to be doing. Oh, I just know I'm going to serve the Lord. And I'll be able to do it finally without a sinful nature. You ever thought about this? We've never gotten to serve the Lord without a corrupt, sinful nature. We've never gotten to serve the Lord in the capacity of which uh, we are designed to do so because we still have on this flesh. So when do we put this off and we get to return to be with Him? That ultimately is the reward itself. Now, as we see here, we go on. The reward for all believers, and especially applicable to those who suffer for Christ's sake, like the Thessalonians, will be that every believer will participate in Christ's triumphant return and marvel in who He is and what He has done and what He is now doing as the righteous judge of all. What we often do is we make the mistake that uh, for the reward of the believer, and now don't get me wrong here, the rewards of the believer, they're, they're named, they are mentioned in the Bible, we get crowns. Right? There are different crowns for different reasons, and um, the idea of these crowns is one who have run a, a race or even an athletic event of some sort and are given a crown from uh, the, the Bema seat, the, the place of Uh, reward giving, which is where uh, the believer will receive judgment from. And and so as we receive such reward, our focus has often become in in the church, uh, the the literal physical crown, right? Uh, And less about the actual reward being the reward giver. Uh, the, 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 The reward is not just about getting a crown and seeing who can tally up the most crowns or the most rewards. Jesus himself is our great reward. The fact that we can see him face to face. Uh, no longer veiled, uh, no longer uh, hidden by our flesh or, um, uh, or, or marred by our fleshly nature or our human mind. We will now be able to see him for who he is. We will know him. He will know us. Uh, we shall see the one who bled and died for us. We will see the lamb. We will see our savior. Uh, to, to be able to express this, is, is, to be honest, it is impossible to fathom Uh, the beauty and the glory of who Christ is and to be able to understand what his presence will be like throughout all eternity and the fact that we will get to see him, to know him. But ultimately, Jesus is not only the rewarder, but he is the reward for the believer. What could be more rewarding, by the way, for the Thessalonian believers who are facing persecutions than to see Christ who saved them, who has bought them, who they belong to and who belongs to them as well, who uh, allows them to go through persecutions to, uh, as well to, to do so for His name's sake, for His glory's sake, as well for an example to the sake of the churches. Uh, what uh, a wonderful testimony it is that these folks who were used by God in perhaps one of the darkest times of their life will be able to see the one who allowed it, who brought it to pass, who it strengthened them in those days and used those sufferings ultimately so that they would be built up so that they would be more faithful, so that they would be an example of faithfulness throughout the, the churches, and as well that He would be glorified in them. Ultimately, uh, perhaps one of the greatest rewards that we often miss for the believer is that the Lord will be glorified in His saints. That is reward in and of itself. It should be a reward for our hearts to know that we have glorified God Almighty. Now as we get into this, we see that all of redemptive history, and as we're going to work into verse 11 through 12, we see that all of redemptive history is to the glory of his grace. Uh, just for, for a little bit of reference, we see this, I'll read for us Ephesians chapter 1, uh, just to help us out a little bit this morning, just to remind us of what is true uh, about uh, being in Christ. And ultimately, uh, that all of redemption story, all of redemptive history, all of time and eternity is to bring us and point us to the grace and glory of God Almighty. Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Notice this, and this is the key for understanding, not just here in this passage of Ephesians or there in Thessalonians, but all of the Christian life and the Christian life in and of itself. It is to be found in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love. "...having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, uh, are on earth even in him. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, having uh, being predestinated according to the purpose of him, who worketh all things of the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye he heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also after that ye believed, You were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. Notice, we see several key phrases throughout that whole chapter. It is this idea that all of the Christian life and all of our reward, all of redemption's story is found in Him. It's found in Christ. It is found in His death, burial, resurrection. It is found in the personal work of Jesus Christ alone. But then we also find key phrases uh, that it is to the pleasure of His will uh, to, to bring about redemption for us. It is uh, to the praise of His glory, of His grace. It is to the praise of His glory, all of creation, all of the, the day of consummation, including the judgment as we see in Second Thessalonians that will be taking place uh, in a flaming fire on them that uh, know not God and that obey not the gospel and those that will be punished with everlasting destruction the Lord is glorified in all things. The Lord is glorified when someone is saved. Wouldn't you agree? Of course. Is the Lord glorified when a bird is hatched from its, in a nest? It is just as glorified if the nest falls out the tree. He is glorified in all things, and every act of God is to display and declare His glory. It shows us His divine nature, His character, His actions, and that all things are to the praise of His glory. And therefore, the church today should be to the praise of His glory, every Christian to the praise of His glory, and as well, ultimately, because one day when we return with Christ in this day of flaming fire and judgment and whatnot that we have already seen and discussed, when we return with Him, It will be to the praise of His glory. And it will be endless, infinite, just as His glory is. Now as we get into verse 11 and 12, uh, we begin to see the success of those that suffer. Success is promised here to the believers who by faith endure tribulation and persecution. Success is promised. Why? Because you say, well, is it successful to be killed for the cause of Christ? I can't think of much more successful things than that, right? Uh, now, that's not what we're seeking, by the way. We're not out trying to find someone to hunt our head down. Uh, we, we are trying to simply give the gospel. But if we suffer for the name of Christ, the Lord has glorified much and, and as well, uh, the gospel goes forth. We have seen throughout the ages, throughout 2,000 years of church history, countless souls that have been saved while they have watched martyrs being killed for the cause of Christ, even those who who are the ones doing the persecuting, even be born again uh, due to the example and the sincerity of someone's faith to go through such. And so what a testimony it is to suffer for the sake of Christ. And here's what he says about it. He says, Wherefore, also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in Him according to the, glory, uh, to the grace of our God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in verse 11, Paul prays that they would be counted worthy and would fulfill the will of God with, power, with the power of faithfulness. Here he begins, he says, we pray always for you. Now we see that phrase in other portions of Scripture, normally in the first chapter where Paul is sort of giving a time of prayer or thanksgiving for the church to whom he's writing. Uh, we see um, as well over in uh, Colossians, he, he gives such a, a, a time where he says, uh, in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. For this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, not cease to pray for you. Um, you know, we see this in many of his letters as he is letting them know we are praying for you, but then he even lets them know the specific things of what he's praying for. Now, I, I love, uh, it is wonderful to be able to tell someone, hey, I'm praying for you, but it is something extra special to go, hey, I'm praying for you about this need, right? Uh, because then you know it's truly being prayed for. You can say, praying for you, right? And it's very generic sounding. Now you might be praying for them and that's a good thing. We should be praying for one another, but then we find the specific needs that is given here. He says, Praying always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling. MacDonald writes, In the preceding verses, the Apostle has been describing the glorious calling of the saints. They have been called to suffer persecution, which in turn fits them to rule in the kingdom. Now he prays that their lives in the meantime will be counted worthy of such a high calling and that... God's mighty power will enable them to obey every impulse to do good and to accomplish every task undertaken in faith. Here's what we find ultimately for the Christian life. Whether we are seemingly victorious in the eyes of the world or being utterly destroyed in persecution and martyrdom, Ultimately, what we find is that the only way to live the Christian life is by grace through faith. Ultimately, the Christian life is to be lived not by our power, but it is to be done with power. But where does the power come from to live the Christian life? Not from our flesh, not from our own strength, for we have none. If we had strength, we would not need Christ. It is Christ who is our strength, who gives us strength. It is... Uh, In Him that we are able to do all things, as Philippians tells us, where Paul is writing, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, what's he talking about in the whole passage? He's talking about suffering and whether he's abased or abounding, no matter what he faces, he is able and only able to do anything in this physical life and spiritual life because of Christ. It is Christ's power that enables and equips the Christian to live the Christian life uh, and the expectations of the Christian life. The only reason why you and I are able to pray, to read, to understand, to know, to, to serve, to give. The only reason why we have anything to give, the only reason why we have uh, any desire even to come into the house of God today is because of Christ in you, Christ in me. And so this is God's power that gives the believer power. Now let me ask you this. Do we think that we need God's power to worship Him? Of course. Do you think we need God's power to evangelize, to witness, give testimony, pass out tracts? Do we need God's power to give to missions? Of course. So if we need God's power for those things, how about this? Do we need God's power to take out the trash? Yeah. Why? As you you and I know, it don't take much on our own and we can stumble and fall pretty quickly. right, Right? We can... We can roll an ankle. We can, uh, w- without God's power and strength, I think every time we go out the door with that bag of trash, the bag's probably ripping, right? And then it's only God, by God's power that we can pick up the trash and then put it in the bigger trash bag. You ever notice that, right? We find if we need God's power to even breathe, we need God's power to do anything spiritually. And then this means as well for the Thessalonian believers, it is only by God's power that they can suffer well. It is only by God's strength that any Christian can go through persecution and to come out all the more glistening to the glory of God. What we find is that this time of suffering and tribulation that they are facing, it is refining them. It is a refiner's fire that that the Lord is allowing in their life to bring them to a place where they will uh, reflect His beauty and point to the Gospel of Christ all the more than they had before. As a matter of fact, earlier on in the chapter we talked about this. Paul says, I've been able to talk about your persecutions and your faithfulness in persecutions to countless churches. And so what an encouragement this is. Here we are. Imagine us now, right? Look around. All right. Everyone look around. You're not doing it yet. There you go. All right. Everyone that you're looking at right now is now a Thessalonian. Okay. All right. You you guys know where Thessalonia is? Go up Doug spur, hang a left. All right. Be right there. If you miss it, you'll have to double back. Now us as Thessalonians, here's what we got. We got the folks from all around our town here that that don't believe the Gospel, that do not obey the Lord. We've got Jewish folks and we've got pagan folks and they think we're a bunch of loonies or heretics Right? They think we're blaspheming or they think we're just flat crazy and they just don't want us around. Uh, because everywhere that we go and we're seeing souls saved, lives are being changed. People aren't going to the pagan temples. Uh, people aren't going to the Jewish temples except to preach the gospel to them. Right? We, we find that uh, commerce is, is changing. They're no longer going to the places that they used to go to, but now they're living a sensible moral life. They're now evangelizing their neighbors. Uh, you know, their children are different. Their children are evangelizing other children. We see this all over the place. right? And now, what, now, persecution comes. They go, we want to put this to an end. Now, let's say this. This comes to us and and now we begin uh, to serve the Lord even all the more during this time uh, where we're doing the best that we can. We're living by faith. It is God's power that has allowed us to suffer. We're simply plugging along each day knowing that today is what I have. Today is all I've been given and I've been given enough grace to get through this day. So therefore, I will preach the gospel. I will go to work and preach the gospel. I will lie down and preach the gospel everywhere I go today. I will live as a Christian is to live. The world around me is putting this pressure, caving in and all around me. But imagine this, we remain steadfast in this. What a wonderful testimony. But this is not just a good testimony about a church. It is a better testimony about the grace of God. It is a better testimony about the power of God in weak vessels such as us. Because imagine this, if we were to start having persecution here in Carroll County, most churches are going to fold quick. Most of us are going to go into hiding quick. Let's be honest, none of us want persecution. They didn't want persecution, but it came to them. And most of the things in our life are either one, we're not expecting them, we're not planning for it, or we just don't want it, and it shows up on our front porch anyways. The key to the Christian life is how do we respond to these things that show up on the front porch of life? How do we respond to them in the church and out of the church and in our hearts and in our homes? As we learn to yield to the Lord, we find that we absolutely desperately need, we need times like this so that we might see His power displayed in us. The question could be asked for all of us, are we willing to be counted worthy of suffering for Christ's sake? They had found themselves in such a place and Paul prays for them that God would count them worthy of this calling. What calling? It is a calling to suffer. It is a calling to be persecuted. Not all will go through it. And I would even say this, not all would even have the opportunity to go through it. We must view everything in the Christian life, whether it is to be rich or poor or persecuted, as an opportunity to advance the Gospel and to advance the glory of God. If you and I do not view everything in our life as an opportunity to give God glory and to point others to the saving grace found in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we have missed the mark of what it means to truly live the Christian life. All of life, whether we go to work, whether we retire, whether we go to school, whether we're out of school, whether we go to church, whether we're at home, whether we're sick, whether we're healthy, whether we're poor, whether we're rich, it is all, all for Him. And what we find is that it is to do what? He says, and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness. For the Thessalonians, they were reminded here that even in the midst of their persecution, that it is to remind them and others who do not know the Gospel who do not know God and do not believe yet, it is to lead them to the goodness of God. It is the goodness of God that leadeth men to repentance and leads us to be reminded that we must depend upon Him because God is good and able in all things. Morris writes, By His power, will aptly apply to both the following. Paul prays that the power of God will be seen in the good purpose and also in the work of faith. Neither is to be done in merely human strength. Faith is not passive. It is ceaselessly active, appropriating God's blessings and using God's power for God's service faith simply appropriates God's word and work to achieve God's will it means this appropriation is the idea that we take God out his word and it is applied to our heart we simply go God has said in Romans let's just take Romans 8 God has said for the believer that there is no longer any condemnation or separation both now and forever He has also said that uh, that those who, have no more condemnation, those who have no separation, that we live by the Spirit of God. And so as I appropriate this to my life, what does that look like? Well, it goes this. In the eyes of God right now and forevermore, so that means forever and forever and forever, I am without condemnation before the sight of God. There is no guilt on my account. Furthermore, there is nothing in my life There's nothing visible or invisible, no thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. Nothing, past, present, or future, that can separate me now from His love. So, in the eyes of God right now, I am forgiven and in Christ, because I'm forgiven in Christ. And and then as well, I am loved by Him in Christ. Christ has shown me the love of the Father. And so now because of that, He has given me an earnest His Spirit that now indwells and has sealed me under the day of redemption and that now I'm able to simply yield my Spirit to His Spirit to appropriate this truth. Now, here's the issue. Most of us know this, right? And here's what has happened, unfortunately, over the past, uh, uh, not even a few decades, but for quite some time. Here's what we've done. Baptists, we've taken Jesus. Charismatics, they've taken the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost we have forgotten that the Holy Spirit is for the believer. Baptists included. The same way that Jesus is for the charismatic, just as well as the Holy Spirit. And what we find is that the only way that I will magnify Christ in my life is as I yield my spirit to His spirit, as I appropriate the work of God in my life, as I simply trust who I am and what I possess in Him. And faith simply is the active agent in this. And so even this truth of where we are called to do something like this that seems counterproductive of waiting on the Lord, waiting is incredibly active. It is ceaselessly active. It is trusting by faith uh, to uh, to wait and to work and to trust God and His plan, His timing, His purpose, and that He is ultimately working in all things and bringing me to the place where I need to be. Ultimately, even if it means to suffer for His name's sake, God's will and good pleasure is being done in my life. But notice this. God's good pleasure in will is truly only seen in our lives as we yield to Him. When we're living by the flesh, we feel as if we're not accomplishing God's will. We're accomplishing ours because that is the flesh. That is the will of the flesh to accomplish one's own will. But the will of the new nature of the new man it is to surrender to the Lord and to be used even in times of persecution for the furtherance of the Gospel. We can only do for Him As far as we depend on Him. We must understand this. I will only accomplish for God what is appropriated by faith. If I by faith am taking God at His word, trusting His work, yielding to His will, then those things will be seen and accomplished to the pleasure of His good will in my life. The opposite is also true. When I live the Christian life by faith, excuse me, by flesh, right? When I live by the flesh, we say, well, how do you live the Christian life by the flesh? Well, it, it's it's often far too common that what we find is that it should be just as crazy as it sounds. The issue is that we don't think of it as crazy as it sounds, but it is. It's an oxymoron. Christian and flesh are polar opposites. It's like saying, I'm going to drink a nice cold glass of oil water. Right? We don't do that, do we? And so what we find is that if I'm living by the flesh, I read God's Word, but I lean on my understanding. I attempt to do God's work by my strength. And I strive to find God's will By trying to work out my own. And then we miss out on the good pleasure of His will in our life. And so we see that in the midst of persecution, Paul is praying that they would understand what Christian living is like. The summation of the Christian life is seen. Those who belong to Christ and faithfully await His revealing are given the power to do God's will by faith alone. Our life of faith, work, and waiting are dependent upon God's power and pleasure. And notice this, it pleases God to give you power. It pleases God to give you power to do the Christian life. Now, I want you to know this. It never once will make God upset for you to ask Him for strength. Not one time in your life will God be upset if you ask Him for wisdom. Not one time will it make Him... uh, Just all sorts of upset if you go, Lord, I'm not able. He'll go, I know. (laughs) Maybe not quite like that, right? It's definitely a paraphrased version. But what is he going to do? He desires to give you power, dear Christian. Not merely power so that you would seemingly get the glory, but that in your weakness his power be displayed so that His grace is given in your life and in the midst of persecution and sufferings and trials, and it's all to the pleasure of His goodwill, to the praise of His glory. God equips and empowers us to endure. And endurance is not merely holding on, you can hold on in the flesh. I can tell you this most churches that are dying today, that are getting ready to close their doors or already have closed their doors, it is because they have not appropriated by faith and they have lived. By the flesh, and they've locked on. They'd rather go down with the ship than trust the Lord with the wheel. We need not merely trust the Lord with the wheel of the ship. We'd better trust Him with everything. It's His ship. And so here's what happens to us. As we look at the Thessalonian believers and we see our own life and we go, well, we're not facing what they we're facing, certainly not, at least not here, but there are countless believers throughout the world that are, and there is certainly a realm of possibility where we will face it here. We must remember that that possibility is not far-fetched any longer. As a matter of fact, I believe each generation we have seen it become more and more uh, prominent. It wasn't that long ago that there was a Christian school in Tennessee that was shot up simply because it was a Christian school. So let's not think that these things are not going to happen. And let's not rem- and let's not forget, rather, let's not forget that just three years ago, in the middle of a lockdown, one of the first things, hey, no, 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 no church is meeting. No, 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 can't have that. Let's not forget that the nation just above us still is attempting to censor and to shut folks down. Not to mention the fact that though we did not see it nearly as bad as other states, it happened some in Virginia, but then it happened throughout in different states depending upon how things went. Let's censor. Let's try to close things up. Maybe we would do it very quickly, weren't they? May we not forget those things. And this is not a political message, but this is to show us the fact that persecution, though it may not be on the doorstep, is walking down the sidewalk. I think it's at least out the car, and it's double checking to make sure the number on the door or on the, you know, on the side of the house is right that it's right at the right place, because it's coming. But, dear Christian, if it does, if God is able to empower the Thessalonians two thousand years ago who didn't have a full copy of God's word, what do you think He's able to do with us? Certainly, he's able to give us what we need. Verse number twelve. I got to hurry. Verse number twelve says that. Now, here's the whole purpose. As we had started, First uh, Second Thessalonians chapter number one, uh, if you remember, and, and you may not, I'll hardly remember, but it's there. We used verse number twelve as this sort of beautiful bookend to show us the purpose of not just the letter but all of the Christian life, all the life of the church, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and ye in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So meaning this, let's break this down pretty simply. You and I will only glorify God as we receive His grace. You and I will only experience the glory of God as we experience His grace. The two are one and the same and, and go hand in hand. Grace is the extension, if you will, or the uh, manifestation of His glory in our lives where He gives to us what is needed for the moment, for the hour at the hand. God's grace will bring glory to Himself and to His believers. The BKC writes, the ultimate purpose of this prayer is the glory of God. Let me pause there for a moment. I would love it if the BKC continued on and said, ultimately, the the purpose of every prayer is to the glory of God. All right? But specifically, they go on and he says it was that God's glory might be manifested in and through the Thessalonians both immediately, verse 12, and at the revelation of Jesus Christ back in verse number 10. That's the second coming. When this happens, the vessels that manifest the glory of God are themselves glorified by association with him. Anybody got a lamp in their house? All right, let me ask this one. Anybody got a, a nice looking lamp in their house? Mine's not. It's cheap from Walmart. Yours might be from Walmart, but you, you might have had one of the fancier ones that cost like $25 or $24.97. Mine was the, the $14.95, okay? But notice with that lamp. You know why you like that lamp? You like it because it shines, doesn't it? It lights up your living room or, or your, your wherever you got it, right? But before it lights anything up, you got to buy it in a box, you got to put it together. And then what else you got to do? You've Got to make sure you pay the power bill. Plug it in. Oh, that's right. You got to put a bulb in. That's right, Teddy. Right? Hey, uh, for Teddy answering that, somebody gonna give him a dollar after it. No, I'm just kidding. I'll give you, uh, remind me, Teddy. I'll give you a sticker for that. That's right. He gets this. This is a bulb. Has got to go in. But all those other things have had to happen too. If that lamp didn't have a bulb, you didn't pay the power bill and you didn't have it plugged in, which wouldn't matter because because you didn't pay the power bill. It don't matter if you got it plugged in or not, right? You're probably not going to like that lamp a whole lot, are you? Because it's not doing nothing. But when you've paid the power bill, you've plugged it in, and you got a fresh light bulb in there, and your living room or your dining room or your den or whatever is nice and lit, the lamp becomes worthwhile because it's associated with the light that comes from it. You and I become glorified in the sense that we are simply associated with the light that comes to us and shines through us. And ultimately, we will be dwelling in the light of the Lord forever and forever. It is God's will that He would be glorified in us. We see that Christ in you, the hope of glory, as Colossians puts it. Sorensen writes, As they walked worthy of the Lord, particularly in the face of mounting persecution and opposition, the name of the Lord was glorified in them. Moreover, at the same time, they were glorified in Him. Thus, enduring persecution and opposition brings glory to our Lord, but at the same time, it gives glory to God's people. Though persecution is never a thing sought for, it does have the side benefit of adding victory and glory to the Christian life. This all is according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the theme of God's grace and glory in the prayer. This shows that Paul recognizes that for the Thessalonians and believers of all time are dependent upon God's grace and are directed to God's glory. God's grace equips and enables the living of the Christian life as we await Christ's revealing, which will bring glory to himself and his people for all eternity. Ultimately, what we see is this simple truth. All of the Christian life, past, present, and future, is all old by grace and all for His glory. Nothing more, nothing less. Let us pray. Lord, we love You. We thank You for this time. We're grateful to be able to study Your Word. Lord, help us whether we face persecutions or trials or whether we face uh, days of ease and rest, Lord, to give You glory and honor, to trust upon Your grace, uh, to be both a base and a bound, to be able to do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We pray that even this morning that we would depend upon Your grace to be able to glorify You as we sing as we fellowship, as we hear your word, as we worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time. Uh, watch over us now and may you be glorified in Christ's name. Amen. All right, y'all, we'll take a pause for the calls? got men's and ladies' per room right over here.